It's a great blessing and honor to be joined today by Dr. John Deloney. Dr. Deloney is a mental health and, we and wellness expert with over two decades of experience working as a researcher, educator, and crisis responder. He is the host of the wildly successful and life-changing advice-giving Dr. John Deloney Show and best-selling author of Own Your Past, Change Your Future, an equally life-changing and not-so-complicated approach to relationships, mental health, and wellness. John, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Man, listen, I'm going to clip that and I'm going to play it for my kids because um, they don't believe any of the things you just said. Man, gonna, it's, my wife it's too, all man. true. As I mentioned, you've been a huge impact on me. So thank you for that. And um, to our listeners, I'm sure. You are awesome, man. Thank you so much. Now, you come from this very academic background. So do I. And we get real philosophical on this podcast. But your show is very, very practical. And you do a great job distilling things down into practical advice. So this is this is going to be a nice balancing act here. Very cool. Let's let's give it a shot. I want to start with an easy question. You may love or hate this one. <laughs> Free will. <laughs> you you're a you're a uh, PhD student in cognitive neuroscience. There is no right. easy question, so it's good. Uh, free will. So oh man, I have been captivated by Sapolsky's opinion. And so I will say that I, I think we have infinitely less free will than we think we do. Um, and at the same time, I, I, I disagree with him at, at the core. I do think that um, semantics aside, we have the opportunity to look at a situation and say, I'm going to do something different. Now you can you can play the whole go down the rabbit hole of of all the different things neurochemically all the nature and, and nurture that we talk about right. on this show genes environment right. all this that's stuff right. influencing your decision making. But what I what I continue to see over and over and over again is that we have we as science nerds have have come up with very very complicated ways of trying to explain and over explain and re explain and over uh, philosophize if you will what are ultimately pretty simple uh constructs and so i i do i i i do think that um and here's the deal ultimately if i'm wrong on that okay um I'd, it, it would it would make us all just an extended version of chat gpt but um mm -hmm. if we're not but yeah i think we do ultimately it's kind of like was, a pascal's wager thing it's like finite reward if you get to you get to prove you're right you get to win the intellectual battle if indeed you say there's no free will but at what cost? Exactly. I, and maybe maybe that's it. Maybe I really desperately want it, want want to hang on to that last shred of human. Uh, the thing that makes us humans, right? Is I I can make a choice. Um, maybe I don't want to live in a post choice world. Yeah, the, the core of your book and all of the advice that you give on your show, it's extreme ownership. The idea that no matter what has happened in your past, you can take ownership of that and you can change your life for the better in the present. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I um. I've, I've said this on other interviews before, and so I, I, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but I think that we've, we have two societal competing narratives, and we've really distilled all of our experience down into one of these two narratives. Either because of the things that have happened to you, even generation, generationally, things you know that have happened to your great-great-grandparents, and as they see the trauma lineage that, that shows up in genetics and all that, because of these things you have a governor on you. You have a limiting factor on the things that you are going to be able to accomplish, how well you're going to be, how whole you're going to be, how good your marriage is going to be, what kind of children you're going to produce. And I, I just reject that whole wholeheartedly for a hundred reasons, but 
The other side of it is if you have, well, let me just stop. If you continue down that argument, that's where you end up with the only thing that matter are, are your feelings because you're the worst thing that ever happened to you. You are always going to be identified by these limiting factors. And so you create your truth surrounded by how you feel. And that's the, that's the road by which you travel is here's my truth today. Here's how I feel today. And the world has to bend and morph and shift around all these different roads coming at all these different angles. The other competing narrative is if you have feelings, if you have any sort of um, any anything that deviates from this, this any, any kind of norm, you're some kind of coward. You're broken. You're weak. Suck it up. Nobody wants to hear about your whining or your feelings or how much pain you're in. Nobody cares. There's no such thing as victimhood. Move on. Both of those extremes, I think, are nonsense. And so mm-hmm. ultimately, I've just had the honor of sitting beside people who everything is an ash, everything. And then they take one little bitty step and it, then they take another little step, another little step, and everything's different. And it was like, man, the language we use to talk about trauma, to talk about some of these limiting factors can become very disempowering if we're not careful. These two extremes that you mentioned, the being entirely dominated by your emotions versus rejecting them completely are stereotypically feminine versus masculine extremes. Mm-hmm. What I love about your show and the advice that you give is you take these stereotypically feminine things like being open about your emotions, being a good communicator, being vulnerable. You make it masculine. You've motivated me as like, this does take courage to do, to open up about my feelings. Dude, it's way easier just to haul off and hit somebody. It's <laughs> it is way easier. That's that's often the most cowardly thing you can do is to throw a grenade or fire a bullet. Sometimes the hardest thing is to look at my wife and say, "I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. I was doing the best I could. Here's what I need from you." That's hard, and it's hard. Here's why: there's no roadmap for it. I've got tons of John Wick movies. There's four of them now, right? We've got all kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. I've got a roadmap for that. Um, I don't have a roadmap for, I mean, my dad was a Texas cop. I didn't get a lot of, well, here's how I feel, son. I didn't get a lot of that, right? So I don't think any of us have a roadmap. And for me, courage is walking up to a thing that needs to be done, a thing that, that we have to do, and there's no roadmap, and I'm going to go anyway. And you're outlining that roadmap. I'm, I'm skipping ahead a bit. But so you use this metaphor for trauma as bricks, like all these experiences that you're carrying around. It's like carrying a heavy backpack. It weighs you down. And whether it's whether it's a big one time event trauma, like a cinder block that hits you or whether it's collecting pebbles all through your life, things that weigh you down. But towards the end of the book, you have this optimistic vision. Not only are we removing the cinder blocks from our backpack and just lightening our load, but we're laying bricks. We're laying a road down to something more positive. Yeah, we've become obsessed with post-traumatic stress disorder and for good reason, but you're seeing a resurgence, um, which has been the history of, of most religious factions throughout history. This idea of um, post-traumatic resilience or post-traumatic growth. So this horrible thing happened to you, you've processed it, you've grieved it as a community, and then it becomes the roads that you, and the foundations for the buildings and the institutions that you build moving forward. And in a culture, talking about those two paths we have, that is, you will only ever be a survivor. You will only ever be um, an immigrant. You will only ever be an oppressor. 
you give you you put periods at the end of everybody's sentences and you give them no opportunity to say okay well then what do i do now like what comes next and it's like well that die is cast you need someone to come in and rescue and save you and instead of saying okay this happened what are we going to do now let's build something better let's build something more profound and we're going to build it on top of this of these bricks that we've been carrying around for so long i i treat my son and daughter differently because of what happened to me when i was a kid and if we continue to take those things and my my dad and my mom they treated me differently based on what happened to them as a kid and so if we can continue that legacy then there's this idea that we're continually growing and continually um, creating stronger foundations for the kids to come. You know, when you look at all the data on intergenerational trauma, it tells a very pessimistic story. You know, like mm -hmm. if you're abused as a kid, you're much more likely to be at risk for for uh, psychiatric disorders or criminality to to continue that cycle abuse, substance use, all this stuff. And, and yet, there's the possibility that you can be the one to break the chain. You can end that cycle. Yeah. I the reason I don't like that is because it attaches causality where mm. it's related think, to that whole free will thing again. Yeah. I, I, I just don't, <laughs> this is years ago. So I don't know if it's still the same way the case now and it wouldn't surprise me, but there was a season when um, the state that I was living in at the time used third grade test scores, third grade standardized test scores to proactively buy property and develop prisons because they just said, Hey, we know X is going to equal Y down the road. And when I saw that data the first time in grad school, I remember just losing my mind because I thought, what are you doing? This is the moment to make an investment in the other road. Mm -hmm. And I think that that data that you showed, it, it is true. It exists. It is true. And I'm not a data denier. In fact, the opposite, except I think you can use that data for one of two purposes one um, interventionist or one as a absolutist a, as a this is just the way this is going to be and one of those is very pessimistic and if you look throughout history groups who use that kind of predictive modeling to say to cast dies on certain groups on thems whoever they are it it always ends up in ash a hundred percent of the time ends up in ash the other side of it or in very totalitarian regimes or the other side of it is this optimistic this baked in no this could be better we can do we can do something different and 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 uh, that's a new idea but man it's one i'm highly invested in john i don't know if you ever got into psychoanalysis but there's something very freudian about this because yeah. it's it's well-intentioned right it's like the overbearing mother there's something about well it's they're helpless to have these poor life outcomes therefore we need these sort of rigorous interventions top down effects as opposed to this whole bottom up like begin at the individual assume that anyone can change for the better despite their disadvantages i think i love the idea of the overbearing mother i think it's very freudian but i, I love um i always want to give some grace because i know how much is lost in translation from the original german to what I what I read, um, but what I do, I think was missed the nuance that was missed is most mothers are trying to love the best they can. Mm -hmm. They're doing the best they can, and when I look around at the generation that we have now, of um, you've heard the old it's the old bro science saying of you know strong uh, or uh, hard times create strong men and good times create soft men right or whatever that old right. saying is. Um, 
I think we we have arrived at the world that we so desperately wanted. My granddad literally fought Nazis. He was a World War II veteran. And he said, I don't want this for my kids. And so I won't I don't want them getting bullied. I don't want them getting beat up at school. And my dad comes along as a homicide detective and said, I don't want my kids around this kind of stuff. I if I see the first line of my son breaking rules, I'm gonna put a s I'm gonna bubble tape, I'm gonna bubble wrap this thing. I've seen the how um uh you know administrators abuse power. I and so all of a sudden Every parent was doing the best they could to love their kid a little bit better, a little bit better. And now we have a generation of kids who cannot experience discomfort, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody, I think, was doing the best they could. Um, and of course, they have their own pathologies too. And here's where we ended up. And so I think it's if you start there, then I can use that same, okay, you want to do what's right. Let me tell you what's actually the most helpful. The most helpful thing is to let your kid fall down and get really scraped up, even break a bone. That's the best thing you can do for your kid and not protect them from everything. And if we can, if I can take your, your good intentions and shift them into a, a different direction, that's awesome. That's infinitely different than pathologizing mom and saying, mom is crazy, mom's evil, mom's wrong. Um, that, I, I don't like throwing grenades at moms. They're doing the best they mm -hmm. can most of the time. What, what is the right level of challenge to give to your children? How do you navigate that in your own life? Gosh, is it, um, I think it's, I used to I used to accuse my wife of having an intellectual um, affair with Vygotsky, the uh, the zone the, uh, of proximal development. <laughs> that's right. Um, I I look at it as as what you can do plus one, and so what is one what is one standard deviation away from what you can accomplish? I'll put that in front of you, and so in non nerd speak. I'm going to give my kids an appropriate challenge for their abilities and their desires, mm. not one that's too far. I'm not going to tell my 13-year-old, you need to run a four-minute mile. That's insane. He's going to quit. And I also don't need to just go, just do your best, buddy. I'm not going to do that either. I want to put a, an appropriate challenge in front of him so that he can feel what true confidence looks like um, and feels like. And um, same with my daughter, right? I'm, I'm going to mm -hmm. take what they can do and do a plus one. And to make it nerdy again, if, if you know of any of the research on language development, parents are subconsciously doing that automatically. You're, Isn't that wild, you, dude? You tend to crazy? use words that are just like slightly above the, your, yeah. your child's capacity for understanding. Well, and uh, so that's <laughs> what's fun is um, I say fun because it's it's just it's uh, they're, they're party tricks. But my wife was Dr. Deloney long before me and. I don't fully understand what she was researching. She was really smart, but what I explain, I explained it is Andy she is, was, right? she was teaching, she, she researched literacy, a childhood literacy. So she taught teachers how to teach kids how to read. Right. And so, um, we have nerdy conversations in our house. I've had friends over just to hang out for the weekend. They're like, y'all are insane. What are y'all even talking about in here? Um, and when my, I have a seven year old first grader, and she uses words that are not first grade words. And so it's it's one little nerdy word ahead, but depending on where your parents went to school or what they think is funny or what they, the conversations they have in their home, yeah, the kids pick it up and they run with it, man. It's a lot of fun. So this seems like a type of advantage that your kids are exposed to that is nothing but positive. And then we talked about the other ones, like, you know, there's the there's the stereotype of the the wealthy spoiled child, right? So too much abundance can be negative in some ways, but in other ways, especially intellectually, 
seems like that's all good. Have have you mapped no, out? No, it's like, it's not. It's not. Um, I, I I tend to look at. Oh, go ahead. I cut you off. Have I mapped out? Yeah. What where 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 the good and bad is. So yeah, so, I, yeah. Tell me more about about the downsides of the. Maybe it's just that your children become nerds and they get picked on. No, it's it's not that. I'm fine with that. <laughs> it, it's um, it is an over intellectualization of everything. So mm. you are in you're in your PhD program. Um, I did two PhDs. Both times, my I, when I sat down with my advisor to come up with a dissertation topic and then a line of research, every every time, and when I was teaching doctoral students, every time the conversation begins with, where's the gap in the literature? Mm -hmm. So you're designed to find holes in everything. That's, that's, the, that's the intellectual training. That's the brain synapse training. Where's the hole? Where's the hole? Where's the hole? Man, that's really hard to be married to somebody who's always looking for a punchline in your argument, right? Or to find a reason why we shouldn't eat at that restaurant. Um, and it can also be paralyzing for a young mind. I don't know the right answer, right? And when you're trained with police officers, it's like, dude, you run into the building and you figure it out live. Academic training doesn't do that. After academic training is slow and it's constantly proving yourself wrong. There's a lot of self-doubt. There's a lot of there's a lot of failure involved in it. Um, and so you have to, I mean, it's tough. It, I, I got kids that, um, <laughs> yeah, that over-intellectualize things. I, and I'm also, um, and this, it's, it's not always popular with my academic friends who I love and care for, but I'm a big hunter. And the, the reason I love being out in the woods is you don't, you, you don't have time to think. It's very visceral and it's very, very real. And it's very right this second, right now, right now, right now. And so it's a good balance to this slow, methodical, I don't know, what do you think? And it's like, I just need an answer, right? Uh, you know, I think I think that's why I picked up dance and I've come to like it a lot. Yes. You have to make these very yes. split second decisions, these subtle cues that you're giving your partner when you want them to turn and so on. And, it, and, and to truly to truly internalize dance, it, you have to learn the steps, you have to memorize the steps, and then you have to just let it go, right? Um, there's something about learning how your bow and arrow works and what's the best place whenever but at some point you got to become one with the woods and you got to get real still and you got to know where the wind is blowing and you got to become part of what's going on out there and it's just a different thing same with baseball players i play music too i've played music for 35 years um there's something about being in it in a song and you're lost in it right where you can tap into something different but going back to what you're saying earlier i think all things all things it's always good to to keep in mind the scarcity and the cancer, right? You can die from not enough and cancer is too much. And whether that's, that's the reason I read fiction after 5 p.m. I don't read any science books or any intellectual stuff after 5 p.m. I got to get my brain a, a different track. I got to get my brain into story and narrative and into imagination. And any much in any of one of one thing is be, can become a cancer it just is and it's not it's not good for us that's a great pivot into your focus on stories and own your past change your future i'm kind of i'm kind of pathologically obsessed with them yes absolutely you know before before we get into stories i i've wondered this every time i hear your very weighty introduction what made you crazy enough to do a second phd I went crazy. Um, I, it was, there was a, I had everything. I had every privilege known to man. My parents are been still married. Um, I had a killer job at a university and I was also a professor and uh, my wife was, we grew up, my wife and I both grew up with not a lot. We both, I, I wouldn't call us poor, but we were pretty close, very, very low middle class. 
and um, we had money that we had never seen before. We just had we were doing all the right things, and um, I got I got doubled over with anxiety in a way that I didn't understand. I didn't I, I didn't understand the physiology, and so part of me wanted to know what was going on. It was also in my mid thirties when that's when your friend's marriages start breaking up for the first time and your friend's parents start dying and, and your neighbors, you know, get cancer. And so it's, it's your grandparents start dying. And so it just be, it was the season of, it felt like everything was falling apart. And then politically in the country, we went from the, the, the normal chaos, if you will, but um, there was some somewhat stability. And then the 2008, you know, eight, not eight, nine and 10, it was like, man, this whole thing can be a mirage. And, um, financially speaking. And so I, I, I just needed to find the answers and I'm a nerd and I happened to work at a university and um, they gave a free graduate class to the employees every semester. And I was like, I always thought that was dumb. Why in the world would I go home and play video games when I could sit at the feet of some of these brilliant professors for free. And so um, that's how I ended up down that road. And then I just got, um, uh, here, here's the other thing. I don't talk about this very much. I was working with students. I've always been working with students and mm -hmm over the 20 year arc of my time working with my students, their questions shifted dramatically. Um, their needs shifted dramatically from, Hey, I think I may, may have dyslexia to three out of four students, seven out of 10 students, eight out of 10 students are on some sort of pharmaceutical, um, psychotropic medication. Um, wow. so many of my students were thinking about killing themselves. So many of my students were struggling with, with significant addictions. And so I found myself out uh, over my head and, getting another getting a degree in mental health helped me learn the right like uh practically speaking here's what i say in this situation here's how to show up for those folks so it was a bunch of different stuff but it all culminated in i need to learn more about this this will be a good roundabout tie into stories so in, in your first chapter of own your past change your future you're very raw and vulnerable about what sounds like a difficult time in your life and it's it sounds like correct correct me if i'm if I'm projecting any of my own misinterpretations onto this, that there was there was an insecurity motivation, something like I need all these external achievements to finally become worthy. And, and you talk about this epiphany that you reached of like worthiness is an internal thing. I just need to reframe my story. Yeah, I, I mean, my sister was a savant. She's brilliant. She still is. She's she's 10x. Got, she's got a different engine in her mind it's hers is a <laughs> i've got a, a a a nice honda and she has a lamborghini and then on like the act i think my brother missed like my younger brother who was a straight c student by the way i don't mind saying that um missed like two questions on the act and then i was a texas high school football player right so i was always the dumb jock in the middle and so i always had this inferiority complex that um I was the dumb one. I, I always wanted to be smart. So I was always chasing this thing. And um, I grew up with, like I said, we didn't have a lot. And um, I grew up in a neighborhood that kind of exploded around me when the oil chemical boom hit Houston. And so I was surrounded by people who had extraordinary wealth. And here I was this kid that just, we couldn't afford a lot. And so I just remember thinking, oh, if I just get that, then it will all be okay. Because right now I feel bad. I just need to, it, feeling good is over there. I'll go get it. And um, man, I, I I have a very Jocko-esque will when I put my mind to it. And if we need to get it done, let's just go get it done. And so um, I started chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing. And as we all know, both personally and the scientific literature backs it up, 
that finish line, dude, it just keeps moving. When you're chasing external external um, validation, that line moves and moves and moves and moves. I relate to that, John. I'm sure a lot of our listeners do as yeah. well. So and, tell and me about me, the turning let, point. Well, let me say this. I, I think this is an important thing because I much of my work these days is with business owners. And some of the pushback I get it is, well, then what am I supposed to do? Just not be ambitious, not do anything? That's stupid. And I think they're absolutely right. Um, if we look around the world today, I got two little kids, man. I, I, I can't afford to have people just stop. I want people to be wildly ambitious and solve huge problems and make my communities better and come up with more cool technologies that are help me and my, I mean, I'm super selfish in that way. Go, go do great things. Just don't forget that whatever you accomplish, your old you goes with you. Just because you make a million dollars does not mean your dad is going to call you one day out of the blue and be like, now I, now I'm proud of you. That call may never come. Um, you're not just going to get handsomer just because you've got dates now. You're not going to feel better about your body. You're not going to feel better about your existential spirituality. You're not going to feel better about all these things just because you hit these external markers. And so I want you to go do great things and start great businesses and solve some of these world's big problems and small problems. But I also want you to know that in and of itself isn't going to quote unquote fix you. You're going to have to do the work to be well. And by the way, if you'll do the work to be well, you can do solve those problems for a lot longer and with a lot more um, uh, uh, energy and stability. It sounds like you've reached a point in your life where you can now take ownership of being both the Texas jock and the <laughs> academic nerd. But not how yet. Can you not tell yet. The we'll get there. Between now when you're nerding out genuinely for your own enjoyment and self-development versus when it's insecurity driven. I need to know more. Otherwise I won't be good enough. Oh dude, that's, that's a, that's a daily war. That is a daily war. Um, I just lost his name. There's a great Japanese philosopher who says that every inanimate object in your home is always, you're always having a conversation with every inanimate object in your home. And it's usually a negatively connotated, um, argument. I wish I had his name. Um, I'll think of it and I'll email it back to you. Um, but every time I walk into this little nook, I've, I've built myself in my, in my, uh, basement. It's got all my nerd books and it's got all my research stuff in there and it's got all my guitars. And every book on that shelf is like, are you going to, are you going to be stupid forever? Are you going to finally sit down and start reading this? And are you going to start? So that's like what you just asked as a constant war with me. So I don't have that figured out. Um, what I'm getting better about is um, stopping, not finishing a book because I think I have to read it. I think an educated person has to have read this book. Um, if the book is terrible, I'm going to put the book down and move on with my life. Somebody gave me a, like, you've got about 3,000 books left in your life or maybe 2,000 books left in your life. Choose wisely, right? And so mm -hmm. um, I've decided to focus my energy on things that I'm interested in things that spark my interest. And sometimes I get two or three books in and four or five articles in and I'm like, eh, I'm done with that. And sometimes my wife's like, hey, are you going to eat dinner this month? And I'm like, I will. I got to finish. So I just go down rabbit hole and that's all good too. Um, but I, it's a daily struggle, man. It's a daily struggle. I like to think of academics now as a language. Um, I sit, I just finished, I just hit on Sunday, hit send on, on a final draft. And there's a chapter there that I know is going to be contentious that I couldn't not put in there. Um, so uh, it's, it's actually a chapter on belief. And I sent it to a, one of my closest buddies who is a brilliant, I mean, just savant level, brilliant law professor who's also an atheist. And I said, I need your feedback on this. 
Um, so he read it and read all the way through it. And his feedback was all in, in lawyerese and legalese and academic legalese, which is a whole other language. I loved every second of it. It was, it, it was just like, I felt like I'd grown up in Mexico and suddenly I'm living in Nebraska and then just somebody called me from Mexico. We could just speak old Spanish again. That's what it felt like. And so wow. it's just a language and it's cool. And that's why I love talking to guys like you. It's just, it's, you get to, I get to talk my old language again. It's great. Um, and then when I'm talking to regular people who aren't academics, who just want their lives to be a little less chaotic or they want to be better in their marriages or they want to be better parents, um, then we're going to speak another language so that they can hear. You do, you do a great job at bridging these two worlds because with academics, there's always the risk of the ivory tower. You get caught up in this bubble and you're only speaking academies and using technical language no no one in the real world can understand. Yeah, I, I, it took me a season. I, the, the, um, the definition I'm resting on right now is that wisdom and true expertise is a three-legged stool. One leg is the actual academic knowledge. You got to know what you're talking about. And I think we have a culture, especially politically and media, where they've thrown that out. You don't need that. You can just watch some YouTube videos and you'll know everything about cognitive neuroscience. That's nonsense. Um, you can learn some data points. You can pass a true-false exam, but you don't know it, right? Um, so you have to know the you have to know the academics, and I think you have to have a personal investment. You got to have a personal journey. You got to have a dad who had schizophrenia, or you have to experience your own issues. You got to have a mom that struggled. You've got to have some personal skin in that game to have felt that. And then the third thing is you have to have walked alongside other people um, as they transformed, as they changed their life, as they struggled. I think we have a an entire ecosystem, especially in the influencer world, of people trying to take their unique experience and call that universal truth. And I think that's madness and insanity. That's how somebody has great success with a diet for a season. And then they try to write a book and say, this is the diet that's going to save the world. And it's, it's just not right. And so your experience is important. Academic insights is important, but also walking alongside a lot of other people. And so in doing so, man, none of my friends, no, that's not true. Very few of my friends, um, that I grew up with are academics, man. Most of the friends I grew up, one of them's a banker and one of them works in HVAC and one of them works at Napa Auto Parts. And so that's where I spend most of my time. So that's that's language 101 for me. And then I learned uh, academics later. And you're the perfect person to do that with all your experience in education and in crisis mm -hmm. counseling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. So that. is this chapter that you're writing for the new book on anxiety? Can we talk yes. about that? Yes, yes. Um, I think the... I think the way we talk about anxiety is completely bananas. Um, and I think we've absolutely stone cold missed the boat. And um, uh, I don't say that from a place of, of arrogance. I say that from a place of, of humility. Um, it's one of those emperors got no clothes on. And at some point we got to, we got to start. <laughs> we, we have to acknowledge the reality, the data driven reality. That is there are more people in therapy than ever before in human history under the care of a trained licensed professional. There are more people on psychotropic medications than ever before in human history. And the depression and anxiety rate is increasing at almost a vertical trend line. And so we have to say at some point, what we're, our solutions, breathe, more breathing techniques, isn't solving this core issue here. Um, and so it's really re-looking at not only how do we define anxiety, that was a little quick read, but more so, how do you create, how do you build a non-anxious life? How do you create a world so these alarms aren't ringing off the hook all the time? And we don't like to have that hard conversation in our culture because it's uncomfortable.
Man, I know it's going to take a whole book to unpack that, but <laughs> let's let's see how much we can get done here. So, so first, what is the current narrative of anxiety? What do we think it is, and where are we going wrong with that? I I mean, we've we've turned it into a, a mental health disorder, and we depending on As which opposed to like an evolved response that's adaptive in certain contexts. Yeah, it, it it's um the the analogy I use um, that I've been telling my students for years is. Um, it's, it's like sitting on your couch in your kitchen. I mean, your house is on fire and your alarm goes off in your kitchen and we've, we've blamed the alarm. We think the alarm's the problem. And so we go shut the alarm off or we smash it off or we climb up on a ladder and pull the batteries out. Um, or we talk to it really gently and we finally get it to shut off and we think we've solved the problem and the house burns down around us. And so um, when you step back and think of anxiety as chronic stress, you think of anxiety as as chronic, low level, low you know, small t traumas, and we we anxiety just become this pervasive way we do life. And if you look at our calendars and our, um, dude, I'm a I'm a data nerd, but it got to a point where I was checking my, you know, my whatever strap here and my data points here my watch is here and letting all these data points tell me what kind of day i was going to have um and if you look at our finances we are way maxed out um we've just created this super anxious life there's millions of people whose uh in-laws are still deciding what they're going to do for for thanksgiving and christmas because we have no boundaries and so of course we're all anxious our bodies are doing whatever it can to get our attention and there's no roadmap for just it's almost like the matrix. I'm dude, I'm unplugging from this thing. I'm going to create a new world going forward. And how do you do that? How do you change the oil on the car while you're still driving down the highway? This is related to that, that paradox you talked about earlier, mentioning your grandfather and people like him, the world that we've created now of super abundance. And yet we're miserable. Yes. It, so it's, why is that? Um, I'll, the analogy that comes to mind is a weight room analogy. You can lay down on a, on a weight bench and I can take all the weights off of it and even take the 45 pound bar away and just hand you a, a, a broom handle. That's it. Like a two pound broom handle. I can make the whole exchange in a weight room very comfortable for you, but you're going to get no strength. And in fact, you're going to atrophy. You're going to have no growth. You're going to have no, um, psychological um, underpinnings of confidence of I not only believe I can, but I know that I can because I've done it. I've experienced it. None of that happens. And um, so we've handed the world to ourselves in all these areas. We've taken the weights off the bar and going to get food and going to find a mate. Now you just swipe right or left and there's billions of them and going to um, used to, you had to work for capital. Now you just go into a bank, you go into a box on the corner and they just write you a check. And they say, pay us back later. That's a problem for future, John. Um, we'll, we'll, you can figure that later. Here's the money now. We've just inverted every system and it's awesome. I love going to the gym and doing no work. It's so comfortable, but I get nothing. I, I bypass all of the systems that make life worth living. Um, there is no growth. There is no strength. And so um, we have to, we've pathologized discomfort in our culture. We've pathologized. Um, and again, we got there very well-intentioned um let's let's stop taking horses and buggies and get there a little faster with a car yes let's stop having to shovel cha-cha out of the streets from the horses and yes that's fantastic let's put a little padded leather on these seats this is 
then it won't hurt so bad. Yes. Let's put a bigger engine. It'll go even faster. Yeah. All these things are great. Hey, let's don't make a fire. Here's this cool thing called a heater. We can just warm your house that way. Yes. All these things are awesome. I love all of them. But I've ended up on the back end not having to work for everything. And um, mm-hmm. my body's not designed for that. I think Huberman's when it calls it cheap dopamine. Like we've just created a world where we just are on a limpy. We just bathe. We, we swim in dopamine. And we are not designed to. There's, there's, that's on a teeter-totter, man. And then you, you got to. You got to pay the pay the toll on the other side. And w- with every generation, with every innovation that you mentioned, there's a small percentage of people who are the ones hustling and innovating and mm-hmm. making things better for the rest of us. And, you know, even now you, you've got people like Jocko and Goggins and Huberman, all these people <laughs> you mentioned. What what is it that sets someone apart to be to to be that? countercultural push to be the one who's constantly striving upwards and how do we become like that that's a great question um to the pessimistic side of me is thinking it's all nature nurture maybe they just have the right genes they had the right early environment mm-hmm. um takes the free will out of the equation but but i believe and, that we can all do that and see when i when i think of them like if what i know more about Andy's uh, Andrew's story and Jocko's story than I do Goggins, but he's, he's talked about his a little bit. Um, Huberman and Goggins have been pretty open about there just came a, a fork in the road for me. I can go this way and be dead, or I can go this way. And they chose the other way. And despite all of the disadvantages around them and um, Jocko put himself in a position where people were trying to kill him. And I've got one choice. I got two choices. I can just die here or I can do the really hard thing and walk into the storm with all the training in the world and great equipment and great teammates, but I'm going in, I'm going to the storm. And so I, I, I think every culture, I think if you try to live David Goggins life, it's, it's insane. It's madness. He's not going to live a long life, right? It's, he's going to wear his body is going to, is paying a price. But I think it's those folks for our culture are very important out, outside of the bell curve to say, you think you're tired, but you could. You could. That guy runs 200 miles a week. You could run 10. You can do 10. And I think those examples are good for me to say, not I want to go be any one of those three guys. Um, uh, I, I spent some time with Jocko at an event um, last year, and it was funny. I, my, my whole thing. I believe that behind all of the masks we wear and all the performance and accolades, whatever, we're just people. We're just people. And um, we're just dads and moms and brothers and sisters and people trying to make our way. And I remember on halfway through the conversation I was having with Jocko, I remember thinking, oh, you're, <laughs> you're different than me. You're different, right? You're, uh, you've worked for 30 years to train this part out of you. You're different than me. And so I, I, I concede that. I don't want... I don't want I don't want to be him, but man, um, I do love the example that, no, I can get up. You can get up. You can get up early. You don't have to eat that. And I think those examples are good for all of us to lean in and go that direction. You know, there's a section in your book. I love you. You bring up the idea of, you know, you can, you can tell yourself a different story and then you bring up the hypothetical criticism. Like, what are you talking about, Deloney? I can't just talk my way out of it. And you bring up, even that is a story. 
that's a meta story <laughs> that you can confront. Yeah, I, I I think if if I was to give you the one glaring issue I, I see in the mental health community is that there's the, there's 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 two big myths, I think. One is mental health. Good mental health is just having all the right thoughts in the right order. And if you can just get the right thinking and the right thoughts in the right order, um, then everything's going to be okay. And that is an over-academization of the world. Um, their brain isn't separate from the body. And so often doing not only enforces, but um, helps write new narratives there. The other one is that mental health is simply reduced. It's reductive to a series of biochemical reactions. And if we can just figure those things out, then we can give you the right pill and we can move on with our day. And I think that is overly reductive as well. And so, yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for who do I want to be now? Like I, I want to be a guy that's a good steward of his body. I want to be that guy. And so what does that look like? That means I got to get a workout routine. I'm going to create a new identity. But I think all, all stories start with creating a new identity, but I'm going to be this guy and I'm going to try this on for a season and I'm going to reverse engineer this identity with this series of actions and activities that are going to get me to that place. Right. I love how you blend the narrative with this academic reductionism with what we know about neuropsychology. You, you give an uh, in your book, an example of a teenager failing a test. So on one hand, you can look at it as a, at a very high level psychologically, like failing a test means you're not living up to this story of the ideal. So that's going to cause you stress and psychological distress. But then from an, it's not just mental, right? If you look at your body, when you're stressed out, your, your, your body releases cortisol and these stress hormones, and that has impacts on your brain and body and has all these downstream effects. So it's not just like a made up negative feeling. As yeah, you say, the and, body keeps the score. Yeah, well, I, I, Bessel van der Kolk is the one who coined that one. But uh, yeah, so just just take basic neurophysiology 101. Money in my house was a big time stressor. It made my dad angry that his community thought so little of the of him putting his life on the line that we were barely above the poverty line growing up. Um, and we had all of these wealthy neighbors that we got to just see every day. So it wasn't like he was even separate. It was like uh, social media in real life. We got to see it right there, but it just wasn't us. And so my body has a, a chemical reaction to money. And then fast forward to, I thought money was going to solve all my problems. And then the bills come and my body is flooded with epinephrine and cortisol. And what does that do? We know that it, it, dulls, at least temporarily, your critical thinking ability. I don't need another shirt. I don't need another guitar. I'm good. That That is offline. And so what I learned for myself is I have to deal in the reality of, of biochemistry, and I have also have to deal in the reality of psychology. And so that means that I need to solve some of these problems when I'm not at war. I need to solve some of these problems when I'm not stressed. That means for a season, I gave my debit card to my wife. I was a grown man. I was the associate dean of a university managing millions of dollars, and I did not have access to my own checking account because I had to teach myself not to over-respond in the face of a, a light company asking for money or the water bill coming. I just went crazy, man. And so I had to break that cycle. And I've had to do that all, you know, all, all through my life, I've got to hit that pendulum way over there so that it can reset here in the middle there. But yeah, you're exactly right. I think denying either one of those things is silly.
we're going to get real nerdy here talking about the neuroscience of inhibition and impulsivity. That's my own area of expertise. Oh, sweet. <laughs> How Do old it. are your kids, John? Um, my son turned 13. Yes. Two days ago. And my daughter is seven. Okay, for, for your son, this is perfect. So I study brain development. I study how pubertal hormones like testosterone and estrogen influence risk and reward processing in the brain. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure you. you know testosterone you. <laughs> influences dopamine function. So that that's related to reward sensitivity, right? Yes. So on one hand, you get this whole influx of pubertal hormones during the teenage years that's in, increasing your brain's response to reward and that happens in these lizard brain limbic regions that mature earlier compared to your prefrontal cortex, which is involved in like the top-down inhibition we're talking about. So there's this massive gap that starts to happen during adolescence. Uh, have you have you heard of this dual systems model of risk-taking? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so you, you know all about it. Is your son starting to share the signs? Well, he has a dad that's not super hinged all that well. So he's been showing that for, <laughs> for a bit. Um, yeah, I've probably erred on the side of over-encouraging risk. Um, I'm so risk-averse. And like all parents, I'm trying to live vicariously through my kids. And so, yes, I have – I'm watching um, – you know this more than me, but my understanding is testosterone is also an amplifier of – of of baseline behavior right so if i'm angry uh, or uh testosterone is going to amplify or if i'm aggressive is a better way to say that mm -hmm. testosterone is going to amplify aggressive behavior but if i'm altruistic um or super sensitive testosterone is going to amplify that behavior is the way i understand it and so i'm watching it in real time it's 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 fun to be a nerd and watch it happen in oh. in in real life but i do think back and think i probably should have been a little yeah. more risk prohibitive growing up. You know, I, I like how you tie in evolutionary psychology to a lot of your writing. You know, when we're, when we're talking about dopamine addiction, for example, like Anna Lemke's work you mentioned, we have this ancient drive for, you know, liking high fat, high sugar, right? In, in the past, it provided all the energy we needed to survive. That was before Twinkies were invented, right? Yes, and exactly. So, so, so our brain is relying on ancient what is the word? You you use this metaphor despite talking about not liking uh, likening the brain to to a computer. Yes, it's, yeah, I hate the uh, mechanization of the human brain, but I can't deny the how easy some of these uh, analogies are. But yeah, we're just we're running Windows two point on on an AI system. It just doesn't work, right? We're running right. an old we're running old tech on a on a really sophisticated problem to solve now and it's and we just don't have we don't have the com computational power to do it so right i've had to make it very behavioral for my life and, re and really anything that has to do with reward if you're thinking about it from an evolutionary perspective ultimately has to do with sex or survival mm -hmm. right so well and, tying and, it back and, go ahead i i man dude we could probably really geek out if you'd like to um i think sex and survival but where i i this is just my uneducated reading of the neuroscience literature moving forward. And you're far more educated than I. Um, well, I'm, I'm I'm educated in the like practicality. How does this apply? Like, what do you tell somebody who's about to kill themselves? I, I I'm educated there, but the actual what neurochemicals it took to get to this place, I'm not I'm not as well versed on that. But I think that you mentioned fine food and mate, 
-hmm. and the dopamine system became really a, a predictive mapping system, right? And when you get this this predictive masking map, you get this predictive mapping season. It's you get this predictability, and I think this this I consider making meaning the neural cost to predict prediction. Because we always have to go back to this, why? Why am I walking over here? And so then we got to start making meaning. And that's when you get stories. That's when you get all these this ancient narratives, right? That we had to, we, we're just story making machines. And I always want to know why we get there. I think we have to find food and we have to find mates. But I think the curse of evolved primates, uh, who uh, what we are, is this obsession. This have to make meaning of what we're doing. And mm -hmm. that came from prediction which i think comes from the dopamine system from oh, i agree with you completely so under the hood here are you talking about carl friston's work on active inference free energy principle have you heard all of that stuff i haven't no you oh, just you're way smarter i, I think on that this one. might be too nerdy for for this here but you, you should definitely <laughs> look into it I'll, I'll email you so please do that and please do that so well I, I i won't get into the details I, but hey, very, does that does that does that pass the smell test does that sound right What's the smell test oh absolutely that, that so, we so, we're and mating and we're finding food and computational theory behind it. Okay, go for it. I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, I, I yeah, that the, there's a making meaning thing there, and I think we are obsessed with finding why and what's your why. That to me feels like a curse. It feels like my life would be easier if I could just find a mate and just find food and just not die. Yeah, absolutely, I love this idea of connecting the narrative to the science. You did this on on Jordan Peterson's podcast as well, which was excellent. So. The computational theory behind this narrative of predictive processing in, the, in Carl Friston's predictive processing framework of consciousness, the idea is that your, your brain is constantly making predictions of the world and there's going to be a certain amount of prediction error. So what you think will happen or want to happen versus what actually happens. And that can be mathematically and computationally quantified with entropy. So Carl Friston is literally the guy who invented all the statistical techniques behind modern neuroimaging. And he has a physics background and he takes these physical laws like entropy and applies it basically to consciousness. So the idea is that when we're engaging in this predictive processing, as you said, we're constructing a narrative and the narrative from an evolutionary perspective has these goals of survival and reproduction. And not only that, but it wants to do it efficiently, right? So entropy is basically how bad your model is and you want to minimize entropy. And in his model, you wouldn't maximize entropy. Cause if I maximize entropy, I'm, I'm sloughing off all the, all the stuff that is, is superfluous, right? So I guess what you're doing, you're, you're minimizing entropy in the sense of like minimizing error. Oh, you're, you're making a perfect, you're making a more perfect model. Okay. In the sense of, but, yeah, but okay, yeah, at the okay. same time, if you really just wanted to minimize entropy, you'd like sit in a dark room and do nothing. There right? you go. Okay. So, right. so yeah. you also want to maximize, I think, information gained, something like that. So, so okay. it, it gets super complicated and mathematical and it goes all over my head, but I think awesome. the theory behind it is really elegant. So affect he defines as basically your body tracking this entropy level. So more than you want is bad you experience that as negative affect and less than you want so when when your model goes well and especially if it's like a positive surprise something that you really weren't expecting that's when you get overjoyed it's it's dopamine and other other neurotransmitters that track all of this stuff so mm. yeah that's that's basically his 
his consciousness theory of everything. It's a computational model for where emotions come from and thus where consciousness and all this other stuff, this higher level cognition comes from. Very interesting. Very cool. All right, I'll check that out. That sounds super fun. Wow. We, we did really go on the, the nerdy <laughs> deep end there. That sounds fun, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's tie this all together. Own your past, change your future. We talked about the not only the psychology and practical significance of stories of ownership and the ability, assuming you believe in free will, at least, to, yeah. <laughs> to, to take ownership, to put your life in the right direction. And we talked about anxiety. Is there anything more you want to say about your upcoming book before we wrap up? Um, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting out there. It's, it's, um, as, as I've been around the block once now, I, um, or twice now, I, I feel, um, it's kind of like being on your third date and the first couple of dates, you just eat it because you want to impress her and you just eat it and you're like, yeah, this is good. Third date. You're like, I don't want to eat that. I don't like pasta. And, and you know, whoever you're dating is like, well, we went to have pasta all this time. Like, I know. I just don't care for pasta. So I feel a little more emboldened in this book to say, hey, here's my understanding of the science. And I know it's going to get me a little bit of trouble. But um, at this point, I'm more interested in helping people have better lives than I am about winning intellectual arguments. And so you're absolutely um, doing that every single yeah. day. Well, I appreciate that. What, what's something you took away from on your past that like was an actionable, like, I'm going to go do this now. And um, I've seen some positivity from it. You know, honestly, it's just hitting me over the head with the same message because it's it's these are classic ideas, right? Right. These, so it's it's really just more exposure. And I think it's the way that you put it, the way you so eloquently combine your personal experience and the clinical experience that you have and all of the science. Because, I, mm. there, you know, there, there are certain references you have, like when you're talking about Sapolsky's why zebras don't get ulcers, for example, <laughs> right. and all the yeah. neuropsychology of stress, you do a great job at distilling it into an accessible format. But then at, at the same time, I'm like, I, I see what he's pointing to. <laughs> My um, There's a few things that the editor was like, we need to take this out. And I was like, no, 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 no. I got a wink at my friends, right? There's a, there's some, there's some. I got the academic wink there. Good, good. There was some subtle nods. I had uh, Michael Gomez, who's one of my, uh, he was one of my practicum uh, supervisors and he's a, he teaches over at Brown. He, he was like, I see what you're doing here. I got you. I got the high fives. So that was, that was good. He said, you were over, overly simplistic in some areas, but I'll let it, I'll let it slide. So that was good. It's good. When is the anxiety book coming out? And do we have a title yet? Um, it's called Building a Non-Anxious Life, and it will be out in October. So we'll, you'll, I'll be all over the place in August and September and all that kind of stuff. So, very much look forward to it. Perhaps we could do a follow-up episode on. I would. It would be a high, high honor. And if I'm in Boston, we can go grab some um, a good Irish food, man. So good I fish and that. chips. John, thank you so much for your time. Hey, I'm really grateful for you, and thank you for your your continued interest in cognitive neuroscience, man. And uh, use that brain wisely. Wield, wield that power well. That's awesome. You as well. I know you are. Thank you.